Welcome to the Daily Journal podcast for January 10th, 2020. I'm Brian Cardile. As the calendar turned a few days ago, hundreds of new laws took effect in California after what was a busy legislative year in 2019. But a few of the most highly anticipated and hotly contested laws have been blocked by courts in the past couple of weeks. And we'll talk about one of those laws on today's show, Assembly Bill 51, which pertains to how employers and their employees can enter into arbitration agreements. Under the law, it were it to take effect, employers in California could not require employees to agree to resolve their disputes against the company in arbitration rather than in court. AB 51 still allows employers and employees to enter into arbitration agreements. Employers just can't require it as a take-it-or-leave-it type condition of employment. Mandatory arbitration clauses have become increasingly common in employment contracts, and the field of arbitration has grown significantly as a result. But workers' rights, plaintiff side attorneys frequently criticize that development and the quasi-judicial forum as disadvantageous to workers. One critique made is that neutral companies are incentivized to get repeat business from company clients, so may look at employment cases differently than, say, a jury would. Such critics also note that certain procedural protections and options are foreclosed from employee plaintiffs in arbitration. Conversely, employer-side attorneys often tout the speed and efficiency of arbitration and its relative simplicity for both sides as compared to traditional litigation. They also say employees who bring good claims into arbitration will be met with good results and more quickly than they would have had they filed a lawsuit. California of late has been pretty persistent in trying to keep courthouse doors open to worker suits. Legislation and and case law in many instances has reinforced employee access to the courts. In fact, a a bill very similar to AB 51 passed the legislature in 2018, but Governor Brown vetoed it, worried that it would be preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act and blocked by a Supreme Court that has been fairly arbitration-friendly in recent terms. The U.S. and California Chambers of Commerce have argued exactly that, in a suit brought last month in the Eastern District that for now has blocked AB 51. They say California's law and the Federal Arbitration Act conflict because the latter reflects an emphatic federal policy in favor of arbitration while, they argue, AB 51 tries to prevent its use. In response, California argues the Chamber of Commerce overstates the reach of AB 51. The state argues that employers and employees are still altogether free to enter into arbitration agreements so long as Employees are not threatened with job loss or other retaliation if they don't. In the state's view, the FAA favors arbitration in part because it presumes genuine consent is given by the parties agreeing to it. AB 51 just guarantees that consent, and so California argues is consistent with the federal law. Judge Kimberly Miller of the Eastern District granted a temporary restraining order against the law just before the new year and is now considering a preliminary injunction motion that would put the law on hold while its merits are fought out in court. As that's going on, we'll take some time today to hash out the different arguments the two sides will be making to Judge Miller and perhaps eventually to the Supreme Court, as this case seems potentially headed in that direction. We'll be joined by two attorneys very familiar with this area of law. First, Cliff Polewski, partner with McGuinn, Hillsman, and Polewski, who's long pursued suits on behalf of employees and civil rights plaintiffs. In his view, AB 51 should survive this legal challenge. Cliff believes the court's jurisdiction over the Chamber of Commerce's cause of action styled as a Section 1983 claim is dubious, and he thinks the novel way in which the law was drafted makes it tougher for courts to say it conflicts with the FAA since it still allows for voluntary arbitration agreements to be entered into and because of some other strategic drafting choices. Then we'll hear from Paul Hastings' partner, Ryan Derry. He's a veteran of their employment law practice and believes AB 51 should and will be struck down in court. 
In his view, the state law clearly conflicts with federal law and policy and the Supreme Court precedent favoring arbitration and a broad interpretation of the FAA. Before hearing from our guests, though, I'd like to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Lawyers Mutual Insurance Company, protecting your practice through 2020 and beyond. Lawyers Mutual's resolution is the same as years prior to protect members' practices with continued benefits. Lawyers Mutual's reputation of stability and consistency has thrived for over 40 years because of their members' loyalty, and they are proud that 93% of members renewed their policies in 2019. Lawyers Mutual offers more than just malpractice insurance to members, including free $100,000 cyber endorsement, a lawyer-to-lawyer hotline, and complimentary continuing legal education. Make visiting lawyersmutual.com one of your 2020 resolutions and find out more about their exclusive member benefits they offer to California lawyers. Okay, Cliff Polesky is a partner with McGuinn, Hillsman, and Polesky. He's a veteran of plaintiff-side employment and civil rights matters, including many that have established California labor standards and protections. He joins me now. Cliff, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Okay, um, so the the fight that sort of attended the the passage of AB fifty one has has is now behind us, and um, now we get the fight over whether or not this law will actually take effect. It's supposed to to take effect a few days ago at the start of the new year and, and is currently held up um, by the suit we'll, we'll talk about. Um, to, to start, could I ask you to sort of frame how you view AB 51 in, in terms of, of what it does? Certainly the parties definitely frame it differently in the in the competing brief. So in your your, your view, what does AB 51 achieve and, and what, uh, what exactly does it do? Sure. Well, there, there's two primary uh, sections of, of the law. Uh, both of them have the same goal, and that is to make sure that any agreement to arbitrate is actually consensual and not the result of coercion, uh, because arbitration involves the waiver of any number of constitutional rights, uh, the right to have the law enforced, the right to have a public court, uh, the right to have uh, a judge actually apply the law. Most people don't realize that, uh, and it's a very important right uh, when it comes to the enforcement of the labor laws, uh, and most people don't, also don't understand that an arbitration agreement would limit your access to the California Labor Commission, to the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, and also may prohibit you from participating in a class action for wage theft, for instance. So it's a very important employee protection statute. What it does is it says that employers cannot require an arbitration agreement for a labor code or discrimination claims as a mandatory condition of employment. It doesn't prohibit arbitration agreements, whether they be pre-dispute or post-dispute. It simply says that it can't be a mandatory condition of employment, which means you don't get the job or you might lose your job if you don't sign it. So any agreement would have to have some minimal degree of consent, which I think is required by the Constitution. Uh, the second provision says that if someone says, no, I don't want to arbitrate, that they can't be disciplined or terminated. So it, it, it basically protects people to exercise their rights. Uh, I, if someone says, I want to preserve my right to go to the Labor Commission, uh, they can't be terminated. Uh, and actually, it goes way beyond arbitration because it says that you can't be required to waive any of your substantive rights, which would mean the statute of limitations, it could mean the right to recover penalties, uh, or the right to bring representative actions. So it's broader than arbitration, but the Chamber of Commerce is focused on the arbitration part of it, 
because arbitration has been misused for years to suppress the rights and the claims of workers. Sure. Okay. I wanted to get into the, the Chamber of Commerce's claims because, I, as we've spoken um, before we recorded, you have some skepticism about just the, the nature of their, their cause of action here. In, in the, the complaint, the description of the cause of action is, is that the Chamber of Commerce and some, some similar type entities are saying that um, their, their rights to um, enter into new arbitration agreements with employees and um, is, is violated by AB 51. And um, so they're suing under uh, 42 USC 1983, the, the civil rights statute saying that that right to enter into these new arbitration contracts is is violated. You have some, some doubt as to just the, the legal footing there, right? Their, their only hook to get into federal court uh, is to state a claim under federal law. Uh, they're trying to assert that the civil rights statute, uh, which says government can't uh, deprive you of your civil rights under constitution or statute, are being violated. But there is no civil right to deprive other people of rights. There is no right either constitutionally or in a statute to force somebody against their will to arbitrate a claim. So I don't think that that 1983 claim is meaningful. It it probably will not stand, and without it, there's no federal jurisdiction. Uh, They're in federal court, obviously, because I think it's a more favorable forum, and they they can't wait to get back up to the Supreme Court. Uh, But I don't think it's federal jurisdiction because they can't point to a, a, a right. The Federal Arbitration Act merely says that a written agreement to arbitrate will be enforced. Uh, it doesn't provide any rights to do it coercively uh, or under duress or to impose arbitration on someone who doesn't want to arbitrate. So I suppose even if the specific terms of the Federal Arbitration Act don't maybe give rise to a, a cause of action here because uh, you know, AB 51 is talking about pre-agreement behavior and pre-agreement procedures. So we're talking about a world where there's not yet an arbitration agreement. Um, you know, the, the, the thrust of, of the Chamber of Commerce's claim seems to be that, you know, at least if it's not the explicit terms of the act, the, the, the you know, just sort of spirit of the FAA is definitely in conflict with AB 51 because the FAA is a, a broad statute reflecting uh, Congress's intent to, to favor this sort of out-of-court quicker resolution method. And so these laws conflict. Um, I guess, what's your thought on sort of that overall more broad broad argument? Well, uh, first, the the U.S. Supreme Court itself has said on, I think, nine different occasions that the Federal Arbitration Act uh, is, is, and arbitration agreements under the Federal Arbitration Act are a matter of consent and not coercion. That's not language that we made up. That's language directly out of nine U.S. Supreme Court decisions. And it has to be the case because there are constitutional rights that are being waived. For instance, the First Amendment right of petition, the Fifth Amendment right of due process, the right to have the law enforced correctly, and the Seventh Amendment right to trial by jury are all in the Constitution. So there is no statute that exists and there is no statute that can be passed that would reduce... Uh, the requirement of a knowing and voluntary waiver, or at least a consensual waiver of those rights. So 
So I, I disagree completely to the extent anyone is suggesting that you can have a coercive arbitration agreement or a non-consensual arbitration agreement. So I, I completely disagree with the concept. But another thing is very, very important to understand is that there's two different contexts. One is the commercial context where anything in commerce or even in the air that might affect commerce may be covered by the FAA, the Federal Arbitration Act. But the Federal Arbitration Act on its face and as interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court does not apply at all to workers in the transportation businesses. That would be railroads, airlines, trucking, transportation of people. Uh, there have been cases extending it to Uber drivers. Uh, and according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there's over 1.1 million California workers in the transportation industries. So the preemption under the FAA would not be complete in the employment context. So no matter what the judge believes or what the law is regarding preemption, this statute will remain on the books and will be enforceable uh, and protect uh, over a million people, uh, which is really important to know. Uh, the law applies to more than arbitration agreements. It will prohibit uh, employers from requiring a waiver of rights, other rights, substantive rights, as I said before, the right to certain penalties, the right to damages, the right to go to the Labor Commission in some respects, the right to a statute of limitations. Uh, so this law is going to remain on the books, uh, and the only thing that's really at issue is whether and to what extent it will apply to workers engaged in interstate commerce. California, in its responsive briefs, argues pretty similarly pretty similarly to what, what you said, that uh, AB 51 does not, in, in fact, conflict with the FAA because the FAA presumes um, that arbitration clauses are entered into consensually by both parties, and AB 51 is essentially just ensuring that that consent is, in fact, there. Um, there's, there's also uh, a piece of AB 51 that I think some folks are not totally sure what to make of something. It seems like of a, a savings clause saying that uh, arbitration agreements that are enforceable or that are covered under the FAA will not be affected by this law. I think some folks have read that to say previous agreements aren't disturbed, um, but others have said, well, say in the future, some mandatory agreement is entered into that theoretically would be covered under the FAA once it exists. And so then arguably the, the law wouldn't apply. Do you have thoughts on that savings clause? Well, I, I, I know what it means. Uh, it, what it means is the, the Federal Arbitration Act is, is a very the first part of it is very simple. It says a written agreement to arbitrate shall be enforceable, save upon the grounds for the revocation of any contract. And what that statute is saying is that if there is an agreement that's actually formed, if there is a written agreement that is created, whether it be before or after January 1, the enforceability of that agreement will be determined by the FAA. It's either enforceable or not enforceable under the present state of the law of the FAA. So there was an acknowledgement that the bill here is focused on the conduct and the conditions under which employers can, can 
can force people to do things. But if an agreement is signed, it's enforceable under the standards of the FAA. So it was trying to avoid the preemption argument. That section was added to address the concerns that there might be preemption or that it might conflict with the FAA. And it basically says we're not conflicting with the FAA because once an agreement comes into effect, we acknowledge that the FAA will govern its enforceability. So it was an effort to allay any concerns raised by uh, Governor Brown or uh, the chamber that there may be some preemption. So it basically says there's no preemption because we're not conflicting with the FAA. Does, would that mean then that even if uh, an employer did sort of violate AB 51 and, and required employees to sign a arbitration agreement, that once that is signed, that it's it's sort of protected? Um, and there's it means that if, 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 if I think it would mean that if an employer violated the statute uh, and a written agreement was created, that its enforceability would be governed by the FAA, not by the statute. That people couldn't point to the statute and say, this statute says that arbitration agreement is not valid. It would have to be determined. Now, the FAA does still permit uh, the courts to use common law notions of duress, uh, coercion, and fraud. So it's not automatically enforceable no matter what it says. And people can certainly raise arguments that there was duress involved, but those arguments would be measured under the FAA standard, and they couldn't simply rely on the statute as a basis for avoiding the arbitration. I guess, is is there any concern then that certain folks comment that the potential for the law could be a little bit less than what maybe was advertised, or they might not have the the teeth that folks might um, have have expected? Well, I'm not sure what advertisement uh, you are referring to. And I can assure you that when the defendants are uh, saying that the sky is falling, they are uh, describing a different law. Uh, This law does not prohibit arbitration. It does not in any way stop uh, companies from forming valid, meaningful arbitration agreements with people who want to arbitrate. Uh, It doesn't prevent the arbitration of any category of case. It doesn't do anything that the Supreme Court said you can't do. Uh, So, yeah, to the extent someone said this bans arbitration agreements, that simply is not true. Uh, That that the the author of the statute and and the sponsors of the statute were very clear as to what it did and didn't do. I think that uh, there's been a sky-is-falling approach to uh, overstate what the law does in an effort to strike it. Down, but it's it's a much more modest law than the chamber is portraying to the court. Sure, um, and just to now keep it, keep in mind. Excuse me. You know, an, an important thing to say is one of the th- because it is conceivable that someone will say, you know, screw it, we're going to violate the statute. The statute has a provision that says that you can get an injunction against a company that's violating the statute or threatening to violate it. What that means is if, if a company says this is a condition of employment, someone could go to court and get an injunction against it, or the labor commissioner uh, could come in and say you can't do that and prevent that from being formed. But I think your, your hypothetical was correct, that if someone wants to risk being uh, sued and having an injunction and attorney's fees, and under the present state of the law, it says it's a misdemeanor to do it. Uh, so if companies want to knowingly violate the law uh, and create an agreement, it will uh, probably be enforceable or not under the FAA. It, 
raises an interesting question for lawyers as to what you advise clients. Uh, I don't think ethically lawyers should ever be advising clients to violate the law. Uh, you may disagree with it, but you go in court and you challenge it. Uh, you don't tell people to violate the law. So uh, I would be uh, disappointed, although maybe not surprised, uh, if some aggressive companies think uh, that's a good way to go, but it certainly would not be ethical. And I wonder, I suppose, even in that case, if you say, okay, the agreement has been signed, that sort of violated the terms of AB 51, or in, in fact did, and it, it's now safe under the um the FAA, perhaps the employer could still be you know, subject to the the penalties of AB 51, I suppose. I don't know exactly how the intersection of the two statutes would work in, in that case, if they could still be penalized for it while the agreement stays safe. Well, yeah, the only penalty in the statute is an injunction and attorney's fees. Uh, there, there's no penalty provision per se. Uh, in, in the first part, that says you must get... Uh, that you can't require it as a condition of employment. Uh, if in the second part, if someone says I don't want to sign, and they are terminated, then there's a wrongful termination case that's available to them, with no no doubt about it. That's a public policy tort to to terminate someone in violation of a, an express statute. Okay. Did I have that wrong? Is it? I thought I read that there were, it could be penalized as a misdemeanor to violate AB fifty one. Well, right? that, that, well, I'm thinking penalties as a as a civil penalty. Okay. Um, the, just one more question, sort of about the the argument relating to you know w- what gets triggered when when it comes to the pre formation of arguments or the argument formation. You know, the Chamber of Commerce is saying that the state is sort of being creative when it comes to drafting AB 51 by placing it in the run-up to arbitration agreements and, and, and regulating behavior that predates those sorts of agreements um, so that they can make the argument saying FAA doesn't apply yet because there's no agreement. And, and the Com- Chamber of Commerce is saying that's sort of a distinction without a difference because whether or not um, the agreements are, are formed yet or if instead, you know, or if the state is preventing you from forming them, then that's the same as, you know, saying they're uh, improper once they're formed. Do you have any thoughts on, on that argument? Well, the state is being creative, uh, but they're not violating the law or the statute. They are What they're doing is they're reading all of the Supreme Court cases. The Supreme Court said, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, and the state says, okay, we won't do any of those things. But here's something we do have authority over. The state has always had primary jurisdiction over the employment relationship. We've got the biggest and thickest labor code in the country that regulates employer conduct and what you can require and what you can require people to waive. Uh, so they, it is creative, but it's creative in a good way, not in a bad way. And to the extent they say it prevents companies from forming arbitration agreements, that's simply false. Because Unlike the statutes in New York or other states where they said you can't do it and any agreement is is not enforceable, our statute doesn't say that. So you can say that's creative, but I think it's, in fact, trying to follow the dictates of the law. Uh, and it simply isn't right to say you can't form an agreement. You can form an arbitration agreement. It just can't be with a gun to someone's head, which I think is what the law is under the FAA and the Constitution. I mean, think about it for a second. The The notion of take this job or or walk away is not 
has not been considered consent since, you know, for 120 years. Because under their logic, a company could say, if you want this job, you have to accept $2 an hour, except the stat- unlike, as opposed to the, the statutory minimum wage. If you want this job, you must waive your right to uh, sex harassment statutes. They can't do that. We have labor laws, and employers simply can't require you to waive your protection under those laws as a condition of employment. That's, that's across the board. That's not just unique to arbitration. Uh, so, so that's the proper role of the state. And as long as the Supreme Court says there has to be some level of consent, uh, it's a really interesting question as to what that consent means. Something that folks don't realize is that in the employment context, after the, the Federal Arbitration Act was passed in 1925, Congress passed two major statutes in the 30s. The first was the Norris LaGuardia Act, and the second was the National Labor Relations Act. The, the Norris LaGuardia Act literally says it is the public policy of this country to recognize that we've allowed corporations to organize in, in this corporate form and accumulate wealth, and individual workers do not have the ability to freely negotiate the terms of labor. And, and it literally says this is the public policy. Keep that in mind when interpreting our statutes. So as opposed to some implied mumbo-jumbo made-up public policy in the Federal Arbitration Act, Congress has said that in the employment context, we recognize that individual workers don't have the ability to freely negotiate their terms, that it is inherently coercive. Uh, and, and that's a really unique feature of the employment relationship here. So I don't think requiring consent is inconsistent with federal law, the United States Constitution, or the FAA as it's been interpreted. Now that said, there's no doubt that the Supreme Court has, in many of its cases, decided that agreements were enforceable uh, under the FAA that were in an adhesion contract or had been required as a condition of employment. But they never considered those issues at the time. They basically started all of their analysis by saying, you've made the agreement to arbitrate. We have an agreement to arbitrate in front of us. We're going to decide whether there's a reason to not enforce it, which is very different than saying, we are now going to tell you how much consent is necessary in the employment context. That's definitely not a question that's ever been answered. In fact, in the in the Gilmer case, Gilmer versus Interstate Johnson in 1981, which was the first time the uh, U.S. Supreme Court allowed the arbitration of discrimination cases. Prior to that case, you weren't even allowed to arbitrate discrimination cases. The Supreme Court said two important things. They said, one, we will allow you to arbitrate discrimination cases because it is consistent with Congress's intention to give the claimants a greater choice of forums. So they justified allowing discrimination cases to be arbitrated because it gave the claimants a greater choice. Now, choice means choice. Uh, And second, there there was a small argument because I think one of the amici in the case made reference to it being contained in an adhesion contract. Now, Mr. Gilmer uh, didn't have an arbitration agreement with his employer. This, he had signed a registration statement with the New York Stock Exchange and 
is included in an arbitration clause. But they literally said that Mr. Gilmer was an experienced businessman and was not contending in that case that he was coerced or defrauded into signing the arbitration agreement and that that issue was left better left for another case. Uh, so so it's, it's an interesting question as to how much consent is required for the waiver of constitutional rights, for the waiver of statutory rights, to be able to allow employers to shut the door to the Labor Commission. Uh, and, and it's something that deserves to get discussed and, and litigated. But as of now, this statute is following the Supreme Court's dictates that it's a matter of consent and not coercion. Do you think that that, uh, that difference of stage in, the, in the, the life cycle of a contract, the different sort of procedural posture that this case could get to the Supreme Court at, and the different question that is presented could could make a, a difference? And you know, folks certainly are not wrong to say that the Supreme Court has been pretty favorable towards the FAA and arbitration generally in the last decade or so. Well, the Supreme Court has been more than favorable uh, to arbitration. They have turned the Constitution upside down. Uh, and they have created a fantasy context for arbitration. No, no doubt about it. And I will not predict what this Supreme Court will do uh, with any arbitration case at this point. But to the extent they are faithful to the Constitution. And, and let me say that, that Judge Gorsuch, uh, before he got elevated, he wrote an arbitration opinion that said, look, there's a public policy favoring arbitration, but that doesn't take the place of needing a valid arbitration agreement. That those public policies don't kick in until there's an arbitration agreement formed. So, you know, it's not clear to me. Uh, I, I, I certainly know that they would love to find a way to rid the federal court system of all employment cases and all class actions if they could. But I think it would be pretty hard to articulate a way around the Constitution uh, and to suggest that you can coercively uh, or under duress strip people of constitutional and statutory rights. One of the mistakes that many of the courts make is they presume that because an adhesion contract is valid to set commercial terms, that it's valid for the waiver of constitutional rights. Meaning, yes, an employer may say, look, uh, I'm going to pay you 20 bucks an hour, take it or leave it. That's fine. They may say you got to be here at 9 o'clock and leave at 5. And that's fine, because that's completely within their control. But stripping people of constitutional or statutory rights that don't come from the employer is an entirely different issue. Uh, and, and I just don't know how the Supreme Court, uh, without undermining 120 years of labor law and the constitutional standard for the waiver of rights that applies to every single other constitutional right, uh, can get there. Uh, I'm not saying they won't but I don't know how they can do it with any degree of intellectual honesty. Uh, and keep in mind that before this case gets to the Supreme Court, uh, there may be legislation that fixes the issue once and for all. The House of Representatives has already passed uh, the FAIR Act, which would eliminate this argument entirely. Uh, and I think is if the Senate changes hands, uh, in 2020, there's a very good chance that that legislation will pass before this ever gets to the Supreme Court and the debate will be over. To elaborate slightly more on the, on the, the FAIR Act, is, is it essentially along the lines of AB 51 and, and not allowing mandatory arbitration agreements in employment co contracts? In employment contracts, in consumer contracts, in civil rights claims, and antitrust claims. Exactly. Okay. 
Uh, well, certainly um, we'll see how all that plays out still in the early days of, of the suit here, but we'll go ahead and, and leave it there for now and see what develops. Cliff Pileski, thanks so much for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Before hearing from our second guest, I'd like to remind the listeners, as always, that this podcast is a great resource for your continuing legal education. If you'd like to claim one hour of participatory CLE credit, once you're done listening to the show, just go to dailyjournal.com, find our podcast library, click through to a short true-false test to complete that, and one hour of participatory credit can be yours. And while you're there, feel free to listen to all of our past episodes and claim credit for listening to them as well. We do greatly appreciate your checking out that credit and perhaps availing yourself of it because that helps us continue to offer this podcast outside of the Daily Journal's usual paywall. Also, don't forget that every Friday, the Daily Journal comes out with the verdicts and settlements section featuring dozens of prominent results from around California, both in state and federal court. And if you have a recent result you'd like featured in that section, we'd love to publish it. To help us do so, visit www.dailyjournal.com forward slash V and S. That's spelled out V and S, no ampersand. Okay, Ryan Derry is a partner with Paul Hastings in San Francisco, an expert on employment law and believes AB 51 should be struck down. He joins me now. Ryan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Okay, so uh, listeners have, have heard from Cliff Pilevsky, the uh, plaintiff side attorney in, in employment actions describe AB 51 and, and what uh, chances he thinks it has in this suit. Uh, first, I'd just like to get sort of your framing of, of the law and, and what it does. So in your view, I guess just describe uh, whatever context you think is useful for folks to know about AB 51. Yeah, so I guess from the employer's perspective, it really uh, carries on kind of a longstanding crusade or uh, that the legislature has had as to arbitration programs in California. And so by trying to limit employers' ability to enter into arbitration agreements with employers in the context of FIHA, the Fair Employment and Housing Act, and the Labor Code, it's really trying to limit any ability to enter into arbitration agreements, which can have benefits for employees and certainly benefits for employers. So it's just trying to create an instance where creating actual criminal liability potentially for employers who are um, putting in place those programs in California going forward. Sure. And, and just to, to flag that real quick, the the potential criminal liability. So I understand that it becomes a potentially a, a misdemeanor for folks that, that are seen to violate uh, this law were to go in effect. Is that right? Correct. It becomes a misdemeanor to um, have as a condition of employment having an arbitration agreement that would go into place that would impact claims under FIHA or claims under the labor code, which typically, of course, would be most arbitration agreements an employer would be interested in going into. And so taking that taking that step to actually criminalize the conduct is something that we haven't seen before. Sure. Okay. Then let's go ahead and, and dive into some of the arguments that, that have been presented and will be dealt with over the, the course of this case that's uh, at the moment uh, has AB 51 blocked from taking effect. Uh, the, the main contention from the Chamber's of Commerce, U.S. and California, and some of their affiliated parties and other uh, business-friendly parties, is that you know essentially AB 51 conflicts with the Federal Arbitration Act. So by the Supremacy Clause, FAA uh, preempts state law, and and that's the end of the story. Right? That's that's kind of the main argument. Exactly. So that would be the the 
you know, Federal Arbitration Act has been held many times over by the Supreme Court to advance the the interest in arbitration in the United States and where you'd have a conflict with state law that the FAA would preempt. I suppose one of the main pushbacks from the state of California is that, you know, even if AB 51 sort of is in spirit is is hoping to keep certain claims that have previously gone to arbitration in uh, in court, you know, it is not outlawing arbitration. It is only saying that folks that reach arbitration agreements that have arbitration clauses in employment contracts have to sort of do so voluntarily that you can't have that term as a, a condition of employment. And so, um, you know, the idea being that the FAA and AB 51 can sort of coexist because they both are okay with arbitration, just has to be sort of done consensually, I guess. Is that kind of the thrust of the state's argument? It's certainly. So that's what the legislature had set forth. So AB 51 actually tracks similar statute that was in a bill that was introduced back in um, 2018, which Governor Brown had vetoed, saying it conflicted with the FAA and federal law. And so the legislature's position with respect to AB 51 and then the governor and signing it was that it is addressing as to entering into those agreements that um, the Federal Arbitration Act doesn't state as to how the process by which one can enter into a contract that is typically left to state law. And so that you could have AB 51 and you could have still compliance with the FAA. However, from our perspective is the United States Supreme Court has been very clear that any um, uh, direction or effort to block the ability to enter into federal arbitration acts or to enter into arbitration acts also potentially violates the FAA. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like the the argument that the Chamber of Commerce is, is putting forward is sort of a, a combination of the, the statute, the FAA, and, and also a handful of Supreme Court cases that have been very, you know, pro-arbitration um, or you know, favorable in, in vindicating arbitration agreements. Um, but it, it does still seem like the, the 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 filings from the Chamber of Commerce maybe make it sound more like AB 51 really is sort of, uh, you know, outlawing arbitration. And I guess that it does seem like a decent pushback to say, well, it, it is still totally fine to have arbitration contracts. I mean, that is true, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is true that you can still have arbitration agreements. Yes. So I guess what's sort of the the um, you think the best argument on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce to say even though you know, to, to that counter argument from from the state is, is just that you know the Supreme Court has said you can't really infringe upon the right to get into arbitration contracts really in in any sort of way. So this would be counted as that. Yeah, so I guess as far as just looking at the Supreme Court precedent, what the Supreme Court has said is there's been a, a long-standing um, – let me back up. Given what the Supreme Court has said, there's been a long understanding as to the, um, the support for arbitration agreements and the ability for parties to enter into arbitration agreements. And so in a line of authority, the Supreme Court has also recognized that singling out arbitration agreements and trying to make it more difficult to enter into arbitration agreements and specific as to other contracts and treat it differently also violates the FAA. And so 
the position with respect to the chamber and employer groups would be that by focusing on agreements to arbitrate and having certain limitations as to what those agreements can do and what parties can do to contract, that that would then also necessarily also violate the FAA and be preempted under the FAA. You mentioned this in a piece that you contributed to the Daily Journal that, you know, there are ways in which this law has has been drafted that seem to make it clear the legislature is very cognizant of all that Supreme Court case law and, and the FAA. One of those being that it doesn't actually, I don't think, say the word arbitration or forbid mandatory arbitration. It just, um, you know, refers to employees not being required to give up, to, to waive certain rights and, and the option to pursue certain causes and, and all the available fora that exist, including courts. So it's sort of another, you know, uh, I suppose, you know, it's easy enough to see what the law is getting at, but it doesn't actually mention arbitration. So do you think it's still enough to be viewed as sort of singling out arbitration, certainly being interpreted by, uh, you know, folks talking about it as a law all about arbitration? Certainly. I think with respect to the impact of the law and just even if we look at the the history and the introduction of the law, certainly was focused on arbitration agreements. And that's what is um, primarily impacted by this law and what comes to mind as being impacted. And certainly the the court in the Becerra case had no difficulty looking at the law and saying this is really impacting arbitration agreements and I need to be looking at it as to preemption under the FAA. Another piece of the the law that seems to go out of its way to to you know outwardly say we're we're not trying to violate the FAA is is a, a section that says the law doesn't disturb any written arbitration contracts that are I think covered or enforceable under the FAA. Um, I've read that there's some uncertainty among experts and attorneys as to what exactly that clause is getting at, but it, at least ostensibly the law is saying we're not trying to conflict with the FAA. We're not trying to um, rip up agreements that are covered by that law. I guess, how do you read that section and does that help save AB 51 at all in, in your view? So I guess kind of from my perspective, that's actually, it's my favorite clause within AB 51 because I don't know what it means. And it's kind of left to the perspective of what does it mean? On one hand, if one reads it says this doesn't apply to any agreement where the FAA applies, then kind of the discussion as to preemption and applicability of FAA and whether you can ask an employee and have a condition of employment to enter into these arbitration agreements, then all of this discussion is really academic and unnecessary. But I think in looking at the statute and looking at what the legislature did and what the intent was, that's not what was intended. And so arguably it could also be read along the context of it's really just narrowly focused on agreements that are already in place that where the FAA applies, or there's just, it's, it's a disconnect that doesn't quite make sense and just kind of incomprehensible of how you can put those two pieces together and say, this is our intent. We're saying, all right, AB 51 can exist because it's only dealing with entering into these contracts and entering into these agreements, and the FAA is about the agreements once they're in place, but then to have language that says, but it doesn't cover any agreement under the FAA. So we haven't determined how to balance those two things, but I think that certainly is what the courts are struggling with and will be struggling with with this, is that language doesn't square with what the statute is intending to do. 
we've spoken about it a, a, a bit in terms of the sort of timing where this law uh, impacts behavior. It's a, it's a pre-agreement uh, impact. The the law says certain behaviors and, and processes must you know occur sort of before these agreements are entered into, um, and that sort of is meant to bolster the argument that the FAA doesn't knock it out. Um, you said that you know that that's sort of a distinction without a difference, but it, it does seem like it would create a lawsuit like the one here that is different from the traditional FAA case that you've, you've, you've seen where there's, in fact, an agreement that is entered into and then say it's uh, not upheld by a court or it's seen a conflict with state law. Uh, here, you know, the, there isn't an actual agreement. And so what the court have to say is um, these processes that the state is you know, just trying to put into place before agreements happen, you know, those are also not okay. I guess, you know, what is the, the best argument for why that distinction or that um, effort to protect AB 51 is not going to hold up? So I guess I here, I, I circle back to kind of what we were talking about before, that it's really that um, distinction that the courts have recognized that there isn't really a distinction if you were trying to implement, make it more difficult to enter into a certain type of contract or a certain type of agreement. So that the FAA fills the space with respect to arbitration agreements where the FAA would apply and therefore would preempt state law in that context, whether it's um, trying to single out and make it more difficult to enter into arbitration agreements or actually is invalidating agreements once they're entered into. And you've also written uh, for our paper that the the idea of adding in the, the potential criminal penalties is something that you think would, you know, sort of count against the law or make courts maybe more likely to to step in. Um, It does seem like in this context, the idea of criminal penalties is uh, sort of not that common. I I don't know um, how how many provisions of the labor code provide for, I guess, uh, criminal penalties, but it does seem somewhat unique. Uh, Is that true? It certainly is unique to have it a misdemeanor to require someone... Let me back up. It certainly does. It is unique to have it be a misdemeanor to enter in this type of agreement. So you may have in the labor code where certain things are unlawful and there may be criminal penalties, but it actually sets something as a misdemeanor to enter an agreement such as this is certainly unique. Okay. Um, Then maybe just a couple last questions in terms of how you see this case going forward. I mean, a lot of folks have described it as the sort of action that would be um, one the Supreme Court would be at least interested in and perhaps want to weigh into. Do you think that it's destined for that sort of path forward? I think likely so. If the if the state of California continues to continues to pursue the case, we can probably certainly see it winding its way up the appellate court. So currently, as it's sitting, as the the district court where it's sitting has requested additional briefing on a couple points, and so that briefing will be submitted and then a determination whether the initial TRO will be a preliminary injunction, and then from there, the matter will proceed. And certainly, if the state continues to pursue it, because we would expect that the district court is going to find that it is preempted and maintain the um, temporary injunction that has been put in place. And so if that's ultimately the result and the state proceeds to the Ninth Circuit, we could see this ending up before the Supreme Court. One potential um, 
slightly different course that I thought seems at least possible is that the district court could consider it and and find that it, it is preempted, but perhaps before doing so, not grant a preliminary injunction, perhaps not think, you know, there's irreparable harm that would be caused to the plaintiffs here. Do you think that's at all possible? And I guess if so, you know, what do employment attorneys or employers need to sort of have in mind that um, as in terms of how, at least in the interim, if it goes into effect, they, things they might need to have, have in mind? So I guess first off, from our perspective, our assumption expectation, given the court's reasoning on the um, temporary injunction would be that a preliminary injunction would be issued given certainly here as to the misdemeanor and the criminality. And so to allow that to potentially continue while the impact of the statute is being debated and determined, that potentially does have significant impact on employers. And so that criminality piece, I think, would provide extra basis or an additional basis as to why preliminary injunction would be appropriate here. And with respect to how to proceed with this law out there, I mean, it's really becomes a risk-benefit analysis for employers in California as to what risks they're willing to take and with the law on the books, whether to continue with um, arbitration agreements, which would impact FIHA claims and labor code claims, expecting that ultimately the the law will be preempted. And where the FAA applies to those employers, we see most employers are choosing to go ahead and maintain and continue with their arbitration agreements, given the benefit of arbitration you know, on both sides. And then just last one, it sounds like you would be fairly confident were this one to make the Supreme Court that it would uh, have a similar sort of fate that previous arbitration type cases have had with the court um, striking down and, and preempting AB 51. Yes, given the the court's jurisprudence in this area, and kind of as we we see the decisions eight and one, you know, kind of even how the balance of the court has changed over time. Certainly, we would expect it to be a decision finding that the law would be preempted by the FA. Right, that the eight to one decision that was the AT and T Concepcion one, right? The that you're talking about. Correct. Yes. Okay. Great. Well, we'll, we'll certainly find out. Um, as the case goes along, but we'll leave it there for right now. Ryan Derry from Paul Hastings, thanks a lot for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's our show for January 10th, 2020. Thanks once more to my guests, Cliff Polevsky and Ryan Derry. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Henrik Nilsson. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget couple of things. First, that CLE credit is available to listeners of this podcast. You can have one hour of participatory California CLE credit for having tuned in. If you go to dailyjournal.com, find this podcast in our podcast library, take a short true-false test, and pay the nearly nominal fee. Also, don't forget that this podcast is brought to you by Lawyers Mutual Insurance Company. Lawyers Mutual is exclusively dedicated to insuring and educating California lawyers protecting and advancing their practices, clients, and their futures. Learn more about the company by visiting www.lawyersmutual.com, calling 818-565-5512, or emailing lmic at lawyersmutual.com. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.